When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In an experiment. Why is light so far? Like, it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speak. I find this not only refreshing, but, but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week we find out about two neutron stars that have made waves in the physics world and take lessons from the past as we explore the future of work. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Benjamin Thompson, here on my very first podcast hosting duty. This is The Nature Podcast for October the 17th, 2017. You may have heard the announcement on Monday that a new gravitational wave signal has been spotted. The ripples in space-time came from neutron stars spiralling into each other and eventually merging. This was the first time merging neutron stars had been observed, but that was just one of many firsts that this event heralded. Adam has been finding out more. Gravitational waves have defined the career of astrophysicist Samaya Nisanki. I basically started working on gravitational waves since I was an undergrad. And for quite some time, many of her colleagues saw this as something of an unusual choice. Senior, well-meaning folk took me aside and said, you know, Samaya, you seem pretty smart. Maybe you want to spend your time doing something with real observations about the universe. Maybe it will happen one day, but, you know, in your lifetime. So, yes. Fortunately for Samaya, this pessimism was misplaced. In late 2015, gravitational waves were spotted for the first time by the LIGO detectors in America. That observation came from two black holes collapsing together something that had never been seen before. But researchers like Samaya expected that other never-seen phenomena should also be detected. For example, the collision of two neutron stars, while less massive than black holes, could still be picked up. In August this year, Samaya was at a conference in Amsterdam. She remembers that there was still a fair bit of scepticism that a neutron star merger would be seen anytime soon. Over lunch, I was talking to the LIGO India head and, you know, he mentioned to me, well, Samaya, in 2019, 2020, I don't think, you know, we will have observed a binary neutron star with gravitational waves. And I have to say, I did pause, but I said, okay, I will take my second scientific bet in my life and say that actually I disagree and I think we're going to see a binary neutron star by 2020. And literally half an hour later... (laughs) This email came into my inbox saying, 
wow, you know, there's some amazing observation that was seen by LIGO Hanford, and it looks like a binary neutron star. Samaya and other gravitational wave researchers around the world sprung into action. Within a few hours, comparisons between the signals from LIGO and its Italian counterpart Virgo had pinpointed a small area of the sky that the signal must have come from, just 30 square degrees. And so this was really, really amazing. Um, you know, firstly, because, for instance, the very, very strong gravitational wave event that we saw two years ago, the first binary black hole observation, had a sky error of 590 square degrees. So when we're talking about 30 square degrees, of course, you know, that totally changes the game for electromagnetic follow-up. Electromagnetic follow-up. In other words, this provided the opportunity to take normal telescopes and hunt the sky for the light from the neutron star merger. Word was quickly put out to astronomers round the world. Astronomers like Ryan Foley, who uses the Swope telescope in Chile. Ryan had been waiting for the chance to hunt down the light emitted by gravitational wave events. But even when he got this alert, he'd have to wait a little bit longer. To make any kind of uh, astronomical observations, we had to wait for the sun to set. During that time, which was about 10 hours, uh, we were just preparing so that everything was as efficient as possible and, um, and so that when the sun did set, all we had to do was execute. But even once the sun set in Chile, Ryan's team didn't have long to put their plan into action. So there was just a short window of time where we had to get everything done and then after that, you'd have to wait until the next night. You know, this is something that we'd been preparing for for a while, uh, but it's always different to do a fire drill and then when, you know, the, the house is actually on fire. It was sort of a, a frantic but calm scenario. And, and somehow it all came together perfectly right at the right time. It was an astronomer in Ryan's team who first spotted the telltale bright dot, indicating the galaxy where the neutron stars had merged. They put out word to other telescopes around the world, and soon every possible observation was being made of the events. So this was the first neutron star merger ever observed. But it was also the first event to be detected both with gravitational waves and with light all the way from radio waves through to gamma rays. This event teaches us a wealth of things about our universe, where heavier elements come from, as well as one origin of the gamma ray bursts that have long puzzled astronomers. When the detection was announced on Monday, a whole host of papers were published in several journals, including Nature. But as well as the results detailed in these studies, the fact that we can now chase the light from gravitational wave events opens up a whole new era of observing our universe. So I think it's a game change in the sense that we have now opened up all our senses. For millennia, the humankind has been looking at the universe. And then just, you know, just with the, the advance of, of LIGO, have we been able to hear the universe. And with this event, it's the first time we, where we've been able to see and hear the same thing at the same time. And so it's, it's really just, it's a new outlook on the universe. And it's incredibly exciting. That was Ryan Foley, who's based at the University of California, Santa Cruz. 
You also heard from Samaya Nisanki, who's at Red Boward University in the Netherlands and is also a member of the Virgo Collaboration. To find out more about the event, which involved hundreds of researchers, make sure to read Nature's in-depth news story. That's at nature.com forward slash news. Next up, we've got Sharmini Bundell with this week's research highlights. Ammonia is normally pretty bad for cells. It's a byproduct of the breakdown of amino acids and is usually excreted from the body after being turned into urea by the liver. Tumours, however, often have trouble getting rid of their waste ammonia since many of them don't have the blood vessels needed to tap into the excretory system. Unfortunately, rather than letting the build-up of toxic ammonia get them down, some cancer cells have been found to be metabolising it instead. Researchers discovered that breast cancer cells can use ammonia to build new amino acids, successfully recycling the toxic waste into a food source. Consume more on that over at Science. A study of ancient coal deposits has shown that dinosaur poo had a big impact on prehistoric ecosystems. It looks like the evolution of large herbivores, like sauropod dinosaurs, changed the number of vital nutrients that were available to prehistoric plants. Coal laid down in the Cretaceous period, after the appearance of giant long-necked plant eaters, contains more key nutrients than coal from before large herbivores arrived. The nutrients were also more widely distributed, presumably because of wandering dinosaurs defecating far away from where they ate. That's all very well for Cretaceous creatures, but it might also suggest that the ongoing disappearance of large herbivores such as elephants could impoverish modern ecosystems. Digest that further in Nature, Ecology and Evolution. This week, Nature's running a special on the future of work. To find out what this future might actually entail, Benjamin spoke to two researchers, looking at it from rather different angles. Could a robot take your job? As technology advances, there's a risk that many people will be left out of work. It's easy to imagine the impact that self-driving vans and trucks will have on many vocations, but not only that, back in February, Nature reported on an AI that was able to identify skin cancers at least as well as a dermatologist. But this isn't the first time the nature of work has been turned on its head. Britain's Industrial Revolution began in the second half of the 18th century and saw a massive shift in manufacturing practices and the way that labour forces were structured. According to Bob Allen, a historian at New York University Abu Dhabi, the earliest people affected were spinners, workers who took raw cotton or wool fibres and span them into yarn. There were many, many uh, people employed in the pre-industrial economy as spinners because the hand uh, processes with the spinning wheel were very inefficient. The introduction of machines like the spinning jenny, invented by James Hargreaves in 1764, revolutionised the process of making cotton, allowing operators to produce multiple spindles of thread at once. This automation quickly eliminated the hand-spinning of cotton, making many women unemployed and raising poverty rates. Needless to say, this made many workers very unhappy. They rioted. They burnt down mills and... uh, destroyed the equipment. So, uh, yes, uh, the workers uh, resorted to direct action to try to uh, stop mechanisation. The government at the time didn't take too kindly to attempts to stop the march of progress and suppress its opposition with force. Despite these conflicts, though, output levels soared. Productivity shot up uh, by uh, factors of 20, 30, 40 times. Uh, But uh, what happened was, uh, so there were new jobs created in the cotton spinning industry in Britain uh, as it was mechanised. 
but the number of new jobs that was created was much less than the number of uh, uh, jobs that were lost. Um, and in addition, it's important to recognize that the ramifications and the job losses were not confined just to Britain. Machines greatly increased productivity, uh, so British uh, production rose and exports rose, but they caused uh, widespread unemployment across Asia and the Middle East. But is widespread automation-related unemployment something the world needs to brace itself for in the 21st century? Sabine Howard from the Bristol Robotics Laboratory isn't so sure. The main challenge really comes from the fact that we're trying to predict the future, right? Um, some say that robots and AI are going to increase productivity and as a result we'll have more jobs overall. Some say that they'll replace 40% of jobs uh, over, over time. And I think the key here is that we, we don't know and we need better data. According to Sabine, even understanding the impacts of robots today is a challenge. If you look at the data from the International Federation of Robots, uh, they tell us that from 2010 to 2015, uh, 60,000 robots in the automotive sector created uh, something like 230,000 jobs. So it was overall net positive impact. But another study from MIT, also looking at data, showed that one robot displaced 5.6 workers in the automotive sector in the U.S. In, in, in a local community. So what you can see is that even though there is clearly for people an impact uh, at a local level, there might be an overall positive impact. And I think we're at the stage where we just don't, we don't know what way that will go. And what we're missing uh, is figuring out how to explain this well, uh, because it's, it's very dramatic to say someone has lost their job, and it's very important to, to figure out how to help them, how to make sure they're retrained, and to make sure that they can live a good life. And training, or retraining, is clearly important. In the UK, a recent government document predicts that within 20 years, 90% of all jobs will require some elements of digital skills. As we learned from Bob, not everyone in the 18th century benefited from automation, so what needs to be addressed to make sure that everyone does in the future? We realise there is a concern, there is a concern by the public that the benefits won't be shared, and it's not just monetary benefits, it's also access to these technologies that could make your work and lives better. Uh, and profoundly what this is, is a societal question, right? How do you make sure that everyone has access to the same level of education, has access to the technology, and how do you make sure that the wealth is not concentrated by just a few people. Uh, and, and I'm hoping that as a society we can answer these questions. To a certain extent, they have nothing to do with technology, uh, and they're the same discussions we've been having for a very long time. That was Sabine Howitz there. You also heard from Bob Allen, whose comment article can be found at nature.com forward slash news. Time now for this week's news chat and Nature's senior reporter Lizzie Gibney joins us in the studio. Hi Lizzie. Hi Adam. Now first up this week, it's looking somewhat likely that a gene therapy might be approved in America. That's right. So this is a bunch of advisors to the Food and Drug Administration. So this is not an actual approval yet, but it's uh, some advisors who have given their guidance saying that this therapy should be approved. So it's likely that the FDA might follow suit. And what is this therapy actually hoping to do? So it's hoping to treat a form of hereditary blindness. So that's for people who have got um, two mutated copies of this one particular gene. Um, and that gene stops your eye's ability to respond to light and, and, and eventually leads to destruction of, of some photoreceptors in your retina. 
And presumably if they've got to this stage, it's already been tested to some extent in humans? Absolutely. So this follows a controlled trial of 31 people um, and they gave them this treatment and then they looked at their ability to navigate around a specialised obstacle course. And they found that over the course of the year, which was as long as um, the the study lasted, um, there was significant improvement in their ability to go around that course. This wouldn't be the first gene therapy approved by the FDA though, would it? No, that's right. So there's another gene therapy that was approved in August. um, And that was a case of taking out people's immune cells and re-engineering them and putting them back into the body. This kind of gene therapy, though, is what everybody classically thought of as gene therapy. Um, So this is the first example of um, the therapy actually replacing or compensating for a a gene that's missing in that person. But gene therapy is a, a type of therapy that there's been some, I suppose, hesitance about historically? People have been thinking about gene therapy for decades and I guess uh, for about 20 years it's struggled um, because of a few failures to get going, a few um, real problems like there's a death of a young patient once in a clinical trial so it really struggled to get out the blocks. Um, But now in the last few years we've seen a couple of much more promising trials exactly in this area Um, and and investors are starting to come back a lot of young researchers are starting to get involved in the field again so it does seem like it may be on the uh, on the brink of resurgence and there's been a lot of talk of gene editing human embryos uh, recently this unlike that would not mean anything could be passed on to future generations. Absolutely not, no. So this is not an edit to the germline, so it's not something to be passed on, it's just in that individual's um, genes. And actually that's one of the issues, is they don't yet know how long um, the effect will last. So the the way it works is a a virus actually um, kind of forces the gene into um, the the person's cells, but they don't know how long they will continue to express that gene that they are otherwise missing. Let's move on to our second story, which I feel has a special significance for Lizzie because only a couple of weeks ago in our 500th show special, you recounted your podcast piece about AlphaGo, the computer that mastered Go. Well, now they're back and they've done something even more impressive. Yes, this is, it's technically called AlphaGo Zero. It's basically a super duper version of AlphaGo. Um, So... This is a version which is better than all of the previous ones. So they now have um, the original beat the European champion, then the next one beat a a world expert. And then they've got the most recent one, which is called AlphaGo Master, which beat the the world champion and is definitely the very best out there until now. This one's called AlphaGo Zero. And it's not just interesting for, um, you know, Go aficionados. It's interesting for people in AI because what they've done is stripped out the human data element of it. So how all the previous versions learned was they got a a kickstart by studying expert games. um, And then they went from there to improve by playing themselves. This version just starts completely from scratch. So it starts off with random games and plays itself. And over time, and also a lot more quickly than previous versions... It got up to um, the level, it passed through all the levels of all the previous versions until now it is the very best out there. So it's the very best out there just by teaching itself how to play this board game. Exactly. So what is also quite interesting about this is it's a much simpler program. Um, So this is able to learn a lot faster and, and get to being a lot better more quickly. 
So they've mastered Go now several times. Are they going to carry on making new pieces of software which are better and better and better? That's actually a question I I need to go back to them on um, because I don't know yet if this is the end of the line for Go. It's such uh, a good way of testing out um, their their programs. And actually, because what they're doing is obviously not just trying to get amazing at Go. They've, they've done that now. <laughs> if that's what they were trying to do, they'd have stopped a while ago. What they're trying to do is work towards um, the most general artificial intelligence they can. And there are lots of different paths to doing that. Um, but this particular idea is that they're, they're employing in AlphaGo Zero is to get rid of human input because um, in if we try to apply artificial intelligence in the real world, um, there may be many situations where we don't have reams of big data to learn from um, or the data that we have isn't perhaps quite suitable. Um, And in that case, a computer that can just learn from scratch by playing itself in a way um, is going to be much more useful. What kind of things are we actually talking about? Presumably when we say the real world, we don't mean other board games. No. These would be things like uh, problems like protein folding to figure out how a particular structure will fold. There are other problems as well where you're um, either working towards an optimum, so for instance in terms of energy consumption, um, or where you're looking for new materials, say, and there are so many different possible options out there, um, which like the Go board, there are so many combinations um, that it'd be impossible just to brute force attack it and try and work your way through all of them, but instead you generate this intelligent way of, of searching through all of those possible options. Has this piece of software that's learned to play Go taught Go players any new tactics? Has it come up with anything new itself? It has, actually. So um, the way in which it learned, because all the time it was playing against itself and it started off like a beginner, like both sides were a beginner. So they played in a very human beginner way, very naively. And then it quite quickly, after just, I think, about three days, it got up to the kind of master expert level. And then after 40 days, it's this superhuman level. Um, And some of the strategies are, it's recreated ones which humans have spent thousands of years coming up with. So on one hand, it's quite nice to say that, um, you know, we haven't been playing Go completely wrong the whole time. And there are some really great strategies there. But on the other hand, it's also in some ways opened up options because Go is a very traditional game. There are lots of proverbs and um, kind of uh, learned knowledge from the great masters that go into how people play. And actually, AlphaGo and, and the more recent version, AlphaGo Zero, um, have shown that there are that these are not strategies that you have to stick to, that you can break the mould a little bit. And, and it's come up with some whole new plays that people hadn't thought of before. So it's a bit of a mixed bag, really. Lizzie, thanks a lot for joining us. For more on those two news stories, head to nature.com forward slash news. So that's it for this week. Thanks for listening, team. We're back again next week with more great stories from the world of science. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter. We're at Nature Podcast. And if you've enjoyed the show, be sure to tell a friend or leave us some stars in the relevant place. I'm Benjamin Thompson. And I'm Adam Levy. See you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.